It's really, really important that when people think about what an interim agreement is, they understand there is nothing about it that's a waiver or an exception or a reduction or anything. Two contrasting views of the Teamsters TA with UPS, which I would argue offer a good overview of the TA from both pro and con perspectives. People are standing up for their rights after years of being oppressed. I know we're going to win. It's a matter of being here and, and supporting each other. Cooperatives are an old model, having been used by every group throughout history. They operate on the values and principles of democratic participation, inclusion, solidarity, and sharing. So TikTok recommendation algorithms are not designed to change people's behavior necessarily. They're designed to simply maximize clicks. The first meeting I went to, I found out that social work adjuncts were not going to get the same pay increases as the arts and sciences or the business school. I started to work at Greatest Harbor Community Hospital when it was a private nonprofit in 1976. I made less than $5 an hour. The starting position in a sawmill would be seven or eight bucks an hour. And most of the retail clerks working at Safeway and such places were making around five bucks an hour. So me having a bachelor's degree, I was a little bit incensed. I bring the example up only to point out that like yesterday's labor radicals are tomorrow's union bureaucrats. Every penny I have earned since I have been a man came from these docks and these ships. I have inhaled the dust from the sweat boards and smelled the stale urine in the hold. I have seen men mangled and killed. The waterfront, the waterfront is my life. I know what I'm talking about. The facts of the crime were almost irrelevant because uh, the testimony uh, against Sacco and Vanzetti was based on their ethnicity, their political views, hysteria about the Red Scare. Today's show features clips from the SAG-AFTRA podcast, Labor Express Radio and Workers Beat, the Checkout, Solidarity Breakfast, and All Who Labor, and the UFCW 3000 podcast, which is one of our newest members, plus Labor Wave Radio, the Green and Red podcast, and Building Bridges Radio from WBAI. I'm Chris Garlock, and you're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SAG AFTRA Podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree Ireland, National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator of SAG AFTRA. And I'm Ben Whitehair, Executive Vice President of SAG AFTRA. On this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the interim agreement, which allows independent non-WGA productions to proceed without violating the strike order. In this discussion, we're joined by SAG-AFTRA President and Chair of the TV Theatrical Negotiating Committee, Fran Drescher, and Vice Chairs of the Negotiating Committee, Linda Powell and Tom Kemp, as well as Negotiating Committee members, David Jolliffe and Sean Sharma. Enjoy. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I want to start. Duncan, can you tell us what is the interim agreement? 
Sure. And so I think it's really, really important that when people think about what an interim agreement is, they understand there is nothing about it that's a waiver or an exception or a reduction or anything. This is the full set of terms that the AMPTP could have had if they would have signed on the dotted line on July 12th. And frankly, they could still have if they'd sign on the dotted line today. So that's really what an interim agreement is, Ben. Amazing. And Fran, from your perspective, why do you think the negotiating committee decided to offer an, an interim agreement? What's the reason for such strong support from the negotiating committee? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a unanimous vote in favor of interim agreement without objection. And that's because it's actually an extremely smart and strategic move in our strike. It's so important that we keep journeyman actors working and we keep the crew at work so that they have more opportunities to pay their bills during the strike so that we can maintain our resolve and our strength and our conviction to make sure that we don't cave and give in to anything but the best contract we can ever dream of. And that's really why we're doing it. And if I'm not mistaken, Duncan, I believe that whoever does work an IA production right now is actually going to get paid more than they've ever gotten paid before. Yeah, yeah, because the minimums in the interim agreement are the minimums we proposed, which are 11% higher than the current scale rates. Life is about fluidity and change and evolution and revolution. And I think that the independent film maker remains closer to the artistic collaborative art form that it is intended to be, that it should be, that we should all be supporting and are not completely hooked in with their own bonuses and shareholder profit, because that is not really conducive for a collaborative art form. I love what you're saying, friend. The sag After podcast is produced and edited by Aaron Goddard and John Small. Supervising producers are Pamela Greenwald, Shira Reich, and Michael McNulty, with production and marketing support from Damon Romine, Jilly Cocante, Delaney Howard, Margot Giordano, Joe Mulgado, Mae Wong, Bernadine Robbins, and Maria Cabasis. The podcast is hosted by Ben Whitehair and me, yours truly, Duncan Crabtree Ireland. You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lacero. What I will do tonight is to quote briefly from first from Labor Notes, an article by Alexandria Bradbury entitled UPS Teamsters to Vote on a Contract That Ends Driver Tears, Lifts Part-Timer Pay states the following, it's clear that their strike threat paid off in a big way. To the tune of $30 billion, the union's calculation of how much more the UPS is spending on this contract than on the last one. The article goes on to state, among the wins that will reverberate around the labor movement is the elimination of a low-paid second tier of drivers known as 22-4s. The article touts other victories such as this deal requires UPS to create 7,500 new full-time inside jobs by combining 15,000 part-time ones. Air conditioning on new trucks, restrictions on driver surveillance equipment, and limits on the use of PVDs, personal vehicle driver. Contrast Labor Notes analysis with Joe Allen's article, What Happened to the Big UPS Strike in Counterpunch? He opens up his article with a question, Can a union achieve an historic victory, a game-changer in contract negotiations without an actual strike? The rest of the article points out the serious weaknesses in the TA, foremost being pay-for-part-timers. 
as Joe states, possibly the biggest victory for UPS was keeping the historically low pay for newly hired workers at poverty wage levels, despite the pledge of O'Brien to end part-time poverty. The TA calls for part-timers who are hired or reach seniority at August 1, 2023 to start at $21 an hour. Joe goes on to argue this is far below the contract campaign demand of $25 an hour, stating this is roughly what the pay range was that UPS was paying new hires during the worst days of the pandemic. Joe points out that other vaunted successes like air conditioning in the truck fleet are not as significant once you examine the details. Only about a third of the trucks will have air conditioning by the time the contract expires in 2028. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide, 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. This is Gene Lance on the Worker's Beat Extra. Welcome. You are at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, Terminal D, with a bunch of people wearing red shirts, and we are demonstrating for fair pay. The sign says, largest airline, lowest pay. I just walked by Brian Golden. He's my counterpart. He's the president of the Tarrant County AF of LCIO. I'm the president of the Dallas AF of LCIO. And Brian was standing next to Tavita Uhutafe. That's Tavita. <laughs> I found this guy. You're not even in the communication workers. What's your union? I'm with the steel workers. He's a steel worker. And you're also, though, the principal. Also, the secretary, yeah, secretary treasurer of the Central Labor Council in Dallas. Yeah, you're the, you're the principal officer of, of the Dallas Council. So, why are you out here? Union brothers need solidarity, and that's what we're here for. Isn't this kind of new that there's this much solidarity going on? There is. It's a new uh, new movement that's really catching on with all the different locals and all the different strikes that are going on right now. People are standing up for their rights after years of being oppressed. 
And you think we're going to win? I know we're going to win. It's a matter of being here and, and supporting each other. Right on. That's Lou Luckhart, principal officer of the Dallas AFLCO, one of the largest ones in Texas. We're mostly red shirts. Got about 100 people. People are still coming. We're about an hour into the demonstration at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, demonstrating for a fair contract for the Communication Workers of America people who work out here. I think they're reservation clerks and other kinds of jobs. But there's a bunch of people here, like me, that don't work at the airport, never did work at the airport, don't know nothing about working at the airport. We're here for solidarity. And solidarity is building across the United States. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Welcome to the checkout. This one's uh, near and dear to my heart. We're going to really talk about the rationale for cooperative economy. We're, we're going to talk a bit about some of the failures of the current system, and then we're going to talk about what the alternatives could look like from the perspective of cooperativism. Professor Gordon Nemhart wrote Collective Courage, which in a lot of ways rewrote the history of cooperatives in America by centering the experiences of Black Americans um, and how cooperative economies were so important uh, to Black Americans, particularly after the Civil War. They were championed by W.E.B. Du Bois. She says, cooperatives are an old model, having been used by every group throughout history. They operate on the values and principles of democratic participation, inclusion, solidarity, and sharing. Co-ops are also resilient. They develop and survive as a response to market failure and economic marginalization. COVID-19 decimated sectors in grocery and food. Meat plant workers were among the largest number of victims. Hundreds died. Hundreds of thousands, including their communities and family members, got sick. Hundreds of grocery clerks died and processing workers. Most people who work in the grocery industry, one way or another, were impacted directly by COVID-19. The supply chain uh, issues therefore sort of started to give rise to inflation because as things became more scarce, the price went up. But what started to happen then was big business. And we, we've documented this extensively on this podcast. You can look at past episodes. Big business leveraged the supply chain crisis and the sort of slow drift in inflation, uh, increase in CPI, to just pile on price increases. Literally 50%, at least 50% of price inflation was due to um, corporate, prop, corporate profiteering. This is math, folks. This is an ideology, it's basic math. Right now, due to COVID-19, supply chain, profiteering, CPI, inflation, most of us are paying 20 to 40% more for groceries than we were just three years ago. The top four, eight, and 20 firm share of U.S. food sales continues to increase year over year over year. 
to the point now where the top 20 have over 65% market share. The top eight have over 50% market share and the top four have over 30% market share. A lot of consolidation in grocery. So what does that mean? Let's do the math here. Highest profit rates in 75 years, largest stock buybacks ever. This is what I call Robin Hood in reverse with a big shout out to Bad Religion because that's one of their songs, Robin Hood in reverse. What this means in this instance is leveraging higher consumer prices for record profits, then distributing the gains upwards to shareholders and executives, literally taking money out of their consumers' pockets in order to really just cut themselves checks. It's a great system if you're winning. The rich have gotten richer by squeezing workers and customers. Stay tuned for next time where we'll be talking in greater detail about the cooperative economy and cooperative futures. Thanks for tuning into the checkout. Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR, your community radio station. And uh, if you've been listening to uh, 3CR over the breakfast week, you will have noticed that uh, we have been focusing on AI, artificial intelligence. We've been investigating it. And so this is what we're going to do on this Saturday on Solidarity Breakfast as well. First up, we're going to talk to uh, Professor Richard Dasley, who is currently a Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning and Deputy Head of School for the School of Information Technology at Deakin University. I found it interesting to when I was looking up about being precise about what I AI is, that it's actually, uh, as is described in that rather interesting group that you're part of, which is the Future of Life Institute, um, Mm -hmm. AI uh, is about intelligence, but it's not about feelings. uh, No, definitely not about feelings. Feelings, yeah. And uh, just to read from the Future of Life Institute, We believe that the way uh, powerful technology is developed and used will be the most important factor in determining the prospects for the future of life. I mean, that's a huge statement, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's entirely correct uh, in that decisions about how we're going to live are going to be directly affected and already is by AI. A lot of the AI that people encounter now One, they often don't know they're encountering it, but it's already affecting their lives. If you look at simple algorithms used in TikTok recommendation methods or what appears in your Twitter feed and how these things will actually affect you personally, these things are driven by rather simple AI algorithms, but they've shown that they change people's behavior, although there are also instances where people specifically deliberately do things to train the AI into the things that they want to see as well. So it does go both ways, but these things have the effect of potentially um, changing human behavior. And we want to make sure that either everybody agrees that it should be changing our behavior in a particular way. That's unlikely you get any agreement on that. And I think this is where these algorithms that they're not necessarily designed to change our behavior. So TikTok recommendation algorithms are not designed to change people's behavior necessarily. They're designed 
to simply maximize clicks, which is a change of behavior, but they just want to. They're amplifying the um, commercial imperative. That's what they're doing. That's right. That's yeah. right. And that's what all of these methods have been about for, for years is to try and increase that that commercial imperative. It's just that that's been done with with data mining and AI now. Um, that's right. Some and, extent and- it's been done for a while. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I'm Anna Nowak, and this is All Who Labour. Ellen Lauder is the FFU steward for Lincoln Centre. She is a master's in art therapy and social work and has taught at Fordham since 2006. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. Do you think Fordham values social work school? I think the sands have shifting a little. And I think a lot of the field advisors feel the same way. I think Fordham has a commitment to social work school. It is probably the most diverse student population of all the schools at Fordham. Um, But I think, honestly, less is not better. 10 sessions was barely enough. Seven is definitely not enough. I ask about Fordham's view of social work or your perceived view from Fordham of social work because one of the causes of the FFU was the disparity in social work and other fields. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and also how you got involved in the union? Sure. Well, it was an interesting thing. When the union first started in 2018, they asked people if they just like to show up at negotiations. I thought, well, the summer, I'll go once in a while. It'll be interesting to see. I've been in other unions before. I was in the teacher's union. I was an art therapist in two hospitals. We had a union too. So I certainly had a lot of union, enough union experience to know that it was important. So I went. And the first meeting I went to, I found out that social work adjuncts like me, or people who teach what I teach, we're not getting the same, going to get the same pay increases as the arts and sciences or the business school. And the business school, is, I think, is a separate kind of um, entity altogether. But that really shocked me. <laughs> I was very surprised. And I think it sort of shocked everybody else, too. But there was no way that it was going to change in that first contract because that was a very hard-fought contract with the promise that parity for social work adjuncts would be a priority for the second contract, which was just signed not too long ago. All Who Labor is a member of the Labor Radio and Podcast Network. For more updates on this podcast, you can follow the show on Instagram at all.who.labor.pod or on Twitter at All Who Labor. Subscribe for future episodes, and if you like what you've heard, leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our local UFCW 3000 podcast. I'm Michaela, and I'm here with John Waring, who's going to tell us all about how he unionized Gray's Harbor Community Hospital, which is now Harbor Regional Health. So I started to work at Gray's Harbor Community Hospital when it was a private nonprofit 
1976. I made less than $5 an hour and made less than $10,000 the first year I worked here. The starting position in a sawmill would be seven or eight bucks an hour. And most of the retail clerks working at Safeway and such places were making around five bucks an hour. So me having a bachelor's degree, I was a little bit incensed and seeing that unions may help you with your wages and working conditions. So in 1979, I was contacted by an organizer from UFCW, and at that time it was Local 900 Northwest Economic Council, and it was a new union. NEC had been founded somewhere around 1975, and somewhere between there and 1979, they uh, affiliated with UFCW to get more leverage and have access to legal expertise and various other things. So, I was pretty susceptible when the organizer first came around. We started a campaign for, at that time, the professional unit. The dietary and the service maintenance folks were already organized. They had actually been organized by UFCW 367. And when the tech unit went union sometime between there and 1979, they picked up the service and maintenance folks at the hospital for UFCW from 367 because they were their primary, we, hospitals were our primary bread and butter, mm -hmm. and they thought we could represent them better. So early in 1979, we held an election, we prevailed, and at that point then we got our first contract that mostly just locked in the stuff we had, gave us a salary grid that increased our wages based on longevity, and that um, gave us a cost of living allowance. Mm -hmm. Gradually, over the next several years, we organized the rest of the hospital except for the nurses and the LPNs. The LPNs kind of came late to the party in the uh, middle to late 80s when their president voted to merge with UFCW. And so we got the LPNs at that point. So then they had been represented with the LPN Association, which at that time was very much like the RN Association or WSNA as it's known today. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we organized. For anyone who has questions on how to get more involved, go to UFCW3000.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and thank you for listening. Have a fabulous day. Next up, Labor Wave Radio. Well, I stopped you before you were about to steamroll through the rank and file strategy. So I'm curious what you have to say about that. The rank and file strategy. So I will preface this by saying that I love labor notes and always have because they do something that nobody else really does other than on a maybe much smaller scale, which is basically illustrate for workers how you win things. And they mostly do that by telling stories of workers collectively doing something and winning. Like you use the leverage you have at work, 
I was at a training a couple of weeks ago and there was a labor notes example. Anytime you find like a good example of workers taking action, it came from labor notes. And it was like workers in an airplane hangar who had a new supervisor who was like, I don't know, denying their lunch breaks or something. So they all just collectively left and like suddenly their lunch breaks were restored, something like that. So they know exactly like where power lies and they curate those stories and they develop them into trainings and books and other materials. And then on the other hand, they still have this core, core idea that the problem with unions is that they have the wrong leadership in charge. And I mean, I I understand where the idea is coming from because yes, it is the case that there are union bureaucracies, bureaucrat is the favorite term, in which like the uh, leadership is discouraging of coloring outside the lines, or you know, there's a complacency in that union. The stewards are just as much controlling the behavior of workers as they are arguing their case to management. Like that is a phenomenon that exists, but I'm not convinced that the solution to it is just to put someone else in charge of it. And the most fascinating example recently, and this kind of ties in all the other stuff you're talking about, has been at ALU, Amazon Labor Union. And there's a good article in Labor Notes in their latest issue about how there's now a rank and file caucus at ALU. And the, and precisely the point of contention is whether the leadership should be focusing on organizing the unorganized, like more warehouses, or whether they should be focused on bargaining their own contract within their warehouse. And I bring the example up only to point out that like yesterday's labor radicals are tomorrow's union bureaucrats, right? And like somehow anybody who who ends up, you know, with with the reins of union leadership falls into that position. And I published a piece on this once, I think, you know, something like, uh, something about socialist leadership or won't save unions or like the problem with the rank and file strategy. And not by me, but by Nick. And it just is an excellent takedown of this whole concept that like, if you put somebody else in charge of our existing labor relations handcuff system or grievance process or arbitration process or contract bargaining process, that you're somehow going to get a different result. And I know that, you know, my friends in labor notes, and I really do have friends in labor notes, would respond and say like, okay, but you need leadership that acknowledges the necessity of rank and file action and militancy on the shop floor, et cetera. And I think that that's true. But I could like get in, get deeper into my spiel about why I hate the notion of a militant minority. Well, the guest has been Marion Garneau, editor-in-chief of Organizing Work, frequent guest on Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for getting us out of a hiatus. Thank a you. Very long hiatus. And I'm it was a great conversation to come back to to get the show back on the air. You guys are great. You got to do more stuff. I love it. Here's a clip from the Green and Red podcast. What I want to talk about today is uh, uh, something that's actually very well known on August 23rd, 1927. So we're close to uh, 100 years of that. Uh, 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 Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh, two names which I think are fairly uh, familiar to most of us, were murdered by the state of Massachusetts. Uh, Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested in 1920, in April of 1920. This was amid a a big national kind of crusade against immigrants, something that we're familiar with uh, today as well. There was this kind of fear that, you know, traditional whitehood was being challenged. 
and uh, uh, Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Bonzetti were from Italy. Uh, they were both anarchists. Uh, they often passed out literature and, and tried to talk to people about anarchy. The authorities arrested Sacco and Vanzetti and charged them with the murder of two men during a payroll robbery. Uh, the trial became a national phenomenon. There was no evidence linking Sacco and Vanzetti to the crime. Uh, when the trial began, the judge was uh, uh, Webster Thayer. He's a conservative, traditional white uh, Ivy League judge who often lectured and wrote about the evils of Bolshevism and anarchism, and he was presiding. Uh, the facts of the crime were almost irrelevant because uh, the testimony uh, against Sacco and Vanzetti was based on their ethnicity, their political views, hysteria about the Red Scare. Conviction obviously was inevitable and um, they were found guilty. Convictions were upheld and on August 23rd, 1927, uh, Sacco and Vanzetti were executed by the state. Around this time, you're also seeing um, the, the Scopes trial in Tennessee, uh, the rise of kind of uh, right-wing evangelicals like uh, Amy Seppel McPherson and Billy Sunday. So I think a lot of the, a lot of what was Revival of the Klan and the 20s. Revival of the Klan. So I think it really fits in um, to what we're seeing today. So over a hundred years ago, actually, the, the, the arrest is uh, really kind of similar to what's happening today. I mean, look at the rhetoric about immigrants and criminals and there, what did Trump call them? Rapists and drug addicts and this and that. Drug right? dealers, yeah. Drug dealers and rapists. So I think it's kind of the same stuff. And it was Sacco and Vanzetti and Italians in the 1920s. I think, I forget how many, I think a thousand Italians, just Italian anarchists were, were uh, deported. So this is the kind of stuff that goes on when you're, you know, when your society is really in decay. Clearly the U.S. is in decay right now. You have to look for external forces to blame it on. Mimi Rosenberg. I'm Ken Ash. We're building bridges. In the 15 years that I have worked on the waterfront, oh, this is the first time I have spoken on this microphone, but I don't come to you as a stranger. I made my 21st birthday on the waterfront. Every penny I have earned since I have been a man came from these docks and these ships. I have inhaled the dust from the sweat boards and smelled the stale urine in the hold. I have seen men mangled and killed. The waterfront, the waterfront is my life. I know what I'm talking about, said Cleophas Williams as he addressed a union meeting. Clarfus Williams would become the first African-American president of the ILWU on the West Coast for Local 10 and would serve as the president for four years. That's four terms. Williams was a courageous working-class organizer, a fighter for social justice and the rights of workers nationally and internationally. He believed the struggle for social justice, equality, and dignity was a worker's struggle. And now we bring you the story of Cleophus Williams. 
Cleophas Williams, My Story in Local 10. It's a must for people to educate, agitate, and organize. I'm Amy Rosenberg. I'm Ken Nash. For Building Bridges, that's what we do, and that's what we're all going to do together. Thanks for listening. That is it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Hey, if you're a regular listener, you might have noticed we've more than doubled the number of shows we're featuring from four or five to, this week, nine. But that's still just a fraction of the shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which now includes over 200 radio and podcast shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We're adding more all the time, and we've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We would love to hear from you. You can let us know what you like or don't about the show. Hit us up on social media. Drop us a note at laborradionetwork at gmail.com. There's also a handy link in the show notes. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produced the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. We'll see you next week.